Hi again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this week, Glenn Everly and I are going to sit down with Howard Johnson and learn about the Cedars for the Osable program. It's uh, an effort that's been going on for 25 years now, and uh, our guest, Howard Johnson, uh, is right at the center of it. So I think you're going to enjoy this. Sit back. Relax and have fun. Howard, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Jan, good afternoon. Yeah. Um, why don't you, uh, Glenn, introduce Howard to our listeners and uh, well, let them yeah. know what they're in for. You know, I, I think they probably hear things like, uh, this man doesn't need any introduction, and it's, it's almost true with Howard. He's a, kind of an icon up here in the North Woods and on the watersheds. Um, extremely well known for uh, a passion of his and a, uh, a wonderful project. But there's a lot more to Howard Johnson than just uh, Cedars uh, for the Osable. Um, and uh, Howard, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. And we'd like to have you start, uh, as we often do, by telling us uh, how did you get involved in trout fishing? What was, the, what was the start of that process for you? Well, that started a long, long time ago, I guess, Glenn. Um, I think the way it got started is I happened to be part of a family that owned a cabin on the south branch of the Asabo. How lucky is that? <laughs> yeah. And that cabin's at Chase Bridge. Uh, it was built in 1914 by my great-grandfather, William Howard Nicholas, out of Bay City. Mm. And it's part of what's called the Bay City Hunting and Fishing Club. We're upstream of Chase Bridge. Um, so I was born into the, the family that I started trout fishing uh, in my earliest years. Uh, my next door neighbor at the cottage kind of is the one that taught me how to fly fish. His name is Dwayne Burdick. And Dwayne taught me to fish for drakes and, and, and fish hex. And tell you the truth, it wasn't until I got in college that I fi- found out people fish in the daytime. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> we only fished uh, at, at night for drakes and hex uh, on the south branch. And I didn't know any better. And you didn't fish the rest of the summer? or, or Never did. It was just the hatches? The two hatches? Just the hatches. Oh, that's amazing. So when I got in school, I got meeting other people that fished all day, all year around and during the daylight. What an expansion of a hobby. <laughs> yeah. That's but great. the uh, the Bay City Club uh, was founded in 1912. Uh, we are fortunate that we have uh, about a half a mile of river, and what's even more fortunate is the the founders of the club made an original bylaw that none of the property on the south side of the river could be developed. So we're very fortunate, and we've done many many things to keep that section of the river undeveloped. That's amazing foresight back in uh, 1912 mm-hmm. yeah. for the founders to mm-hmm. establish a conservation, basically a conservation easement almost on the mm-hmm. south side. And that's still protected and honored by the homeowners. How many property owners are there in the club? There's 14 cabins within the club. None of us are property owners of our own land that our cabin's on. We have a a membership right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have 240 acres on the property mm. and so there's a lot of woods that we have had the same professional forester give us advice and recommendations over the last 30 years to, so that we can develop and keep that property for wildlife and game and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we're very fortunate we have a club that everybody has pretty much the same concepts of of conservation. Is this active all year long? Is it closed in the winter or open available for members? The the club is open all year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, our cabin being so old is not winterized. Mm-hmm. So, so we basically close down after deer season and then reopen uh, in the spring. In but about half of the cabins will stay open all year for, for hunting and cross-country skiing and just mm-hmm. enjoying the north. Sure. Tough setup, sir. 
Sounds, nice. It sounds so awesome. Yeah. Now, now uh, being exposed to trout fishing uh, in Bay City, uh, there there must have been a segue into a wonderful organization called Trout Unlimited for Howard Johnsons, and maybe you can share with our yeah. audience uh, how that happened. Yeah, certainly. As I learn more and more about trout fishing, I realize I need to take classes to learn how to fish all these different flies and, and <laughs> yeah. in, during the daytime. So that's how I got involved with uh, Mershon chapter of Trout Unlimited was going to one of the schools that where they would teach fly tying and, and river etiquette and, and casting. And mm-hmm. as I continued with the chapter, certainly one of the first people I remember meeting was Art Newman uh-huh. and, Her- and Harold Kleinart. <clears throat> and uh, some of the, the guys that came along before us. And eventually I became a director and eventually a past president mm-hmm. of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when you get to know Art really well because Art would always take the president, I think, under his arm and, and guide him to some of his philosophies. Uh, my first fly rod obviously came from Wanagas. I'll be darned, really. <laughs> uh, I remember the day going in and... and in selecting the rod, and at the time, uh, Art would put the the cork on and the the reel seat on, and but then he, he would teach you how to tie the guides on, kind of in a very special pattern that was. Oh, okay. you helped build your own fly yeah. rod with him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, so you did the extended uh, that little artistic yeah. wrap. Yeah, and I still have some of those yeah. notes. Yeah. How many wraps and how many open spirals. But then it came time, Art said, well, what color of thread do you want to, mm-hmm. to wrap the guides? And I looked, it was a brown rod. It was an old Wanagas, a Sabo rod, a glass rod. And I said, you know, that orange really look, would look sharp. <laughs> and Art looked at me and he said, orange, hey? And I said, well, yeah, that, I think that would be kind of neat. And I, I didn't realize it at the time that Art didn't think that was the greatest choice <laughs> in the world. But uh, he didn't say much. But you lean against the glass counter, the, the same counter I swear you have in the museum up here. Yes. And he would talk about how to build the rod, but he would also talk about Trout Unlimited. Uh-huh. And, and that was my first indoctrination into Trout Unlimited. Cold water conservation. Oh, what a... What a a wonderful, wonderful man. He was amazing. He was. You made a, a comment about uh, the notes for uh, doing something on the rod. He was unbelievable in his note taking and the detail and the recording of everything that happened. Uh, I remember when he passed away, uh, his son Gary, who's our township supervisor, wonderful guy, said, uh, Hey, Glenn, I've got a file for you. I said, What? What is it? He said, My father's file on you. I said, What? Oh, yeah. He had every letter I'd ever sent him, yeah. when he answered it, copy of the answer, uh, he knew more about me than I did. You know, mm-hmm. He was amazing. It just mm-hmm. The record keeping and, and detail was very German, and I say that in a, in a, in a positive, an admirable way. Mm-hmm. He was phenomenal, record keeping and detail. And we've seen pictures that we have in the museum, uh, one of his... Uh, um, Pissily sent out to all the guys he would go fishing with as to what you should take. Yeah. And Howard, it's about eight pages. I mean, he didn't miss a thing. <laughs> Making those Boy Scouts blush. Mm-hmm. That was... Oh, just <laughs> wonderful. So, any stories that come to mind about uh, time with Art? You fished with him a few times, didn't you? Yeah, we fished a little bit together. Uh, in the later years, Art had difficulty standing in wa- moving water. So it was as much. But Eventually, he'd give away some of the seekers, particularly on the uh, the Rifle River and some of the creeks that oh. we would fish <laughs> in, in that area. Really? Oh. But uh, his guidance was just unbelievably good and how he would kind of shepherd you along in a direction that he thought was, was correct for the chapter. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to be in the room when Art met Chris Wood. Oh, and okay. uh, Chris Radke and I kind of uh, brought that together. And I remember Arthur just tapping Chris Wood on the knee like this and giving him some advice at the very end, too. And Chris Wood at the memorial, when we dedicated the Art Newman Memorial at, uh, in front of the museum, 
he said in that uh, his talk, he said, about the last thing he said to me, he says, young man, what are you going to do for the trout? And I was there when he said it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Hmm. Wonderful connection. What an advocate. Was that... <clears throat> Would it would it be oversimple to say that that kind of opened the door to the to your passion for the for the cedars? It, it, and I know we it, want to talk about yeah, a bunch of other stuff, yeah. but art made you think of fly fishing as conservation, and art would tell you that you go through these cycles where you catch the most fish, and then you're after the biggest fish. And then after that, you become a conservationist. And it doesn't matter whether you catch fish. No. And I think when the opportunity came to me, realizing that we, we need to reforest our rivers with, with seed, native cedar trees, that was my point of becoming a conservationist. But, but, but how did that bubble up? I mean, what was... Was there a certain time you're sitting on a stream or, or watching cedars, or or did uh, the deer eat cedars at the club? Uh, what were the what were the triggers that said Howard Johnson, yeah. you got a mission, and this is it? And it's going to be cedars. I think cedars. I think that came along um, sometime, probably in the '70s. I became involved in the Asabo River Property Owners Association, mm -hmm. and I did because my mother had been a member since the '50s. And the club is a member of the association. And getting involved with the Asaba River Property Owners Association, at that time, a gentleman by the name of Ed Parks was the president of it. And Ed is really the one that brought it more to my attention that there is an absence of young cedars coming up, taking the place of, of the maturing cedars. Well, I decided I needed some young cedars around the cabin on South Branch, so I did what probably other people might do. I went down to borrow a couple in the mason track, and I was going to replant them up in our cabin. So I went down to the track. I actually went to Daisy Bend, and there were no young cedars in Daisy Bend. Along the banks of the river. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I expected to see several one-foot cedars that I could mm -hmm. slide a couple up our way and and I realized there's 300 year old cedars but no young ones mm. so I went to a couple other places well real, realizing that there are none down there I ordered some cedars from the Roscommon Crawford Soil Conservation District mm -hmm. so this would have been probably in the middle fifth 90s oh, okay. and I went in to pick them up that day I ordered 10 of them and the young forester there that was helping me select him, I said, he said, do you want some more? And I said, no, 10's fine. And he says, well, you'll be back next year anyways to get more. And I said, no, I think 10 will probably do it. And he, said, he, said, no. he said, no, the deer are going to eat them all. <laughs> you'll be back. <laughs> you'll be back. So I stopped in Roscommon and I went to the hardware store and bought wooden stakes. So I went to the uh, the, uh, the lumber yard, and I went to the hardware store. And before I left Roscommon, I think I spent about a hundred bucks to make buy the material to make a cage to protect these ten cedars I got from soil conservation. Well, I guess that was when I realized that if we're going to get people to plant replant cedars on their property, we're going to have to make it easy. And at the time, I was on the board of Property Owners Association. And I went to the board and I said, I have an idea that we can put all these all these cedar seedlings uh, with pre-cut fencing and, and stakes together in a kit form and through our association uh, sell these. The problem is we wanted to make the kit affordable. And the, originally the kit was uh, 10 cedar seedlings, the fencing and the wooden stakes. And we charged $15 to the property owners to purchase them, to plant them on their own land. However, the material at the time cost us probably 35 bucks. Mm. So it became my goal to find river conservation groups that would help subsidize this cost. 
because we just didn't think that mm -hmm. people would spend close to 50 bucks to do it. And this is back in the 90s. So this is in the 90s. More than 50 bucks today. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was reflection money. That was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the board, and at the time, the board consisted of, of people like Bill Kessel, Don Zelinka, and some of the early ones. And the board said, well, go talk to this guy that has a cabin on the mainstream, Bernie Fowler. Oh, and, yes. and if Bernie will help you, you, it probably is a good idea. And so I can still remember the day I went up to Bernie Fowler's door and, <laughs> and I knew who he was, but had never met him. At Edgewater. Yeah, at Edgewater. And Bernie immediately said, that sounds like a great idea. I'll help you. Oh, terrific. So that's how it kind of started. But now, what, what did Bernie Fowler do to facilitate this? Was it financially or promotion or what? He helped. Originally, he would help me make contact with people to get funding from various organizations. Wow, okay, for uh, Bernie helped plant and he helped distribute. Oh. And, they, and like the first Cedar Pickup Distribution Day, I mean, Bernie was there. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, and even today, the, uh, his family and his son-in-law, Rodney Nay, helps us just tremendously in, That's the, great. in the project. You know, for our listeners, uh, some of them may not know Bernie Fowler, but he's a famous old uh, uh, river guide, uh, trout fisherman, and I believe he has, he might have won probably six or seven uh, canoe marathons. Some of the very first ones. Early, when they really had regular old canoes. Aluminum boats. <laughs> but Bernie Fowler is a wonderful guy. Well, I think he's gone now, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Passed away, but his, his wife was very helpful to us in the museum. Bernie was very helpful on some of our past exhibits on, on guides and riverboats. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a wonderful reputation as a doer. So the whole Cedar Tree project involves around people. Uh, I'm really nothing more than a coordinator. And the people meaning the property owners that plant them on their property, and probably 600, 700 property owners have planted. Mm. About 20% of the river property owners have, have planted cedars. Uh, and the other people that are involved really are the volunteers that help this, this project. Uh, behind the scenes, there are just so many people that Lots of work. contribute their time. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to just summarize a, a couple of points about the cedars, as I understand it from, from you and from uh, information. Uh, started in 1997, I believe to date you've planted over 20,000 white cedar trees, yep. seedlings in the Osable Manistee watershed. And uh, the success rate, if I'm right, is 70% or better. Right. Mm -hmm. That is tremendous. I remember asking you a question when we were talking about it, North Branch Area Foundation, trying to promote it. I had heard something about 15% success rate and I thought that's a lousy lousy performance uh, what's wrong and I think I sent a note to you and you said where the hell did you hear that that's not right <laughs> it's 70% if it's done properly right uh, so I don't know where the 15% came from that might I mean the survival rate is 75 80% yeah and, and so, that's yeah that's terrific that's terrific the you, you further enabled that though Howard by at least here on the north trying to rehome mm. those seedlings to other new homes on the north. Right. We have two projects kind of within this project. One is for the North Branch, and the other is the Williams Track area uh, on the mainstream above Grayling. We're interested in if a, a seedling that its parents are on the same river that the seedling gets replanted into. Uh, if you get better survival. So here on the North Branch, we have uh, a family, Michael and Marlene Swiss, that actually will take natural cedar seedlings from the ground. She, Marlene puts them into small little uh, containers, grows them for four or five years, then gives them back to, to the project and we replant those on river property here on the north. And she's just below the uh, Lovells Bridge here in Lovells on the west side. And uh, I know her neighbors, I know Marlene and, and Mike, 
And how many how many trees has she produced? Do you think so far? Holly? She keeps better records than I do. <laughs> my my guess right now is I probably have gotten five or six hundred from her. Oh my gosh! But then also on the on the mainstream in the Williams track, we have collected seed stock from older trees on that river, sent that seed stock into the nursery that we use on the west part of the state. And they grow them, and we buy those back as containerized mm -hmm. seedlings. And then we replant those on the upper uh, Asabo ab above Pollock Bridge. And again, we're trying to determine if, if that helps at it all with survivability. Mm -hmm. It's almost but like it, what they're talking about with raising grayling. Trying well, exactly, imprinting mm -hmm. the natural imprinting water and natural water. soil. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the nutrients, yeah. So we've been, I don't know, we've been extremely successful over the years with private property owners planting and, and, mm -hmm. and paying for a share of the product of the cedars, but also river conservation groups, Trot Unlimited, Anglers of Asabo, uh, the Asabo River Restoration Committee, uh, they make donations to subsidize the price. Uh, here locally, Warehouser, and Oroco have made uh, contributions. Oh, good, good to uh, tap them. Yeah, Wonderful. Craig Hinkle, every year for 25 years, has made a donation to the project. <laughs> nice. So we are really subsidized by many, many of the organizations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then in the early 2000s, another idea came to pass, and, and uh, Dave Waltz was one of the people that, kind of brought this idea to me, is if planning on private land is successful, let's contact the state of Michigan and try to plant on state land. And so in the early 2000s, that idea developed, and Susan Teal at the time was the unit manager for DNR Forest. And she accepted the idea just tremendously and shepherded that concept through the the Michigan DNR. Uh, Susan now has retired and the new mm -hmm. unit manager, Tom Barnes, has it continued to, to work right. with us. And we right. have planted uh, extensively in the Mason track mm -hmm. on state land in the early 2000s. And we also have planted on state land in the upper Manistee in the DeWard area. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, we're planting on the upper Asabo on the Williams track above grayling. Mm -hmm. And this has worked out extremely well, and actually our survival rate is a little higher on these plantings because a DNR forester will mark the location that he th or she thinks is best for the cedar to be planted. Oh, good. And, and is that's gotta be a critical part of it. I think the, the sheet that you produce with the, uh, uh, with the seedlings uh, and the package is very descriptive of, of where to plant it, what about looking out for power lines yeah. and things above you? Uh, they're shade tolerant. Um, uh, by the way, listeners, uh, in honor of this podcast today, I planted a cedar in the front of our little cabin here on Shoeback Lake, and Howard's going to go see it after the podcast with John. <laughs> we'll stumble through the, the, the uh, huckleberry bushes, and, and there it is right next to a, a friend of his. That was planted a few years ago. But uh, that was done in honor of, uh, of Howard. So. I think but, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, so planning on the state land, uh, the way we work it is we have what we call planning partners. So on the, on the Mason track, there were five different planting partners, meaning river conservation organizations that adopted maybe a mile of river mm. and Headwater chapter, uh, Mason Griffith chapter, Mershon chapter, Anglers of Asabo, uh, Sierra Club, these various groups adopted a, a reach of the river and they would plant as an organization uh, about 50 trees a year for five year period. So on the Mason track, we have about a thousand trees growing on the Mason track. Wow. And the, the planning partner, the organization, they pay 100% of the cost. Oh, nice. So they, they purchase the original seedlings, the original fencing, they, they pay and install the larger cage when the tree outgrows its little cage to get started. Mm -hmm. 
and they provide the labor to do all of this work. We did the same scenario over in the DeWard area where uh, four, four different organizations have planted over there for a five-year period. So we have around 750 trees growing and protected mm -hmm. over on the, Mace, on the uh, Manistee. I think the Anglers is doing some up there, aren't they? I think that's where I first planted yep. cedars. Yeah, they're the one of the planting partners there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, or Mason uh, Griffiths chapter does Headwater. Uh, the Headwater chapter has done just a tremendous work. There's a gentleman by the name of Gary Eisman that not only looks after the Headwater's trees over there, but he kind of keeps an eye on all of the trees over there mm -hmm. so that we know if, let's say, a natural tree fell on a cage and we have to replace it, or is it time to put the larger six-foot cage in? What, what is the time frame between planting a seedling and when you probably have to increase the size of the cage? Is there a general yeah. a term for that? Yeah, Glenn, the, the generally it's five to eight years mm -hmm. that the, the tree will live in its original cage, which is a three foot tall and it has a, a crown or a top on it to prevent the deer from putting their nose nose down into the cage and, mm -hmm. and plucking that little cedar out. And that usually, it all depends on where it got planted because you can have two trees five feet apart. Five years after planting, one will be four feet high and one will still be a foot high. That close together. And what we understand from the foresters why cedar trees thrive along the river margin is unknown to you and unseeable by you. There's uh, flows of water underneath the ground hmm. that bring the nutrients that that tree needs to the tree. Hmm. And there could be a, a, a small spring under one and not the other. And right, so sure. it's kind of amazing, like uh, Mason Griffith's chapter last year went in out of 250 trees that they had planted over the years, a hundred of them needed to have six foot cages. Oh my gosh, yeah. 40% or something. Yeah, but not all of them, not all of that happens at once. So sure. it's a long-term project because mm -hmm. not only you have the planting, but for another 15, 20 years, you're gonna be putting these larger cages on with the goal that you eventually will be able to even remove that cage, mm -hmm. and the tree the tree will survive on its own. What what height does it have to be? Obviously above where a, a deer can browse. But was it about ten foot? Maybe we or? actually, Glenn, we we suggest that they go to twelve foot high. Okay. So the the larger cage when the property owner or the state land. Uh, install this larger six foot tall cage, which is open in the top for allows the, the tree to grow out through the top. We remember that the deer that is trying to eat that tree is standing on snow and maybe an ice pack mm -hmm. and it can reach up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So we allow that tree to grow to be 12 feet. At that time, uh -huh. everything can be removed. The lower branches will be browsed by the deer Mm -hmm. But the growing tip, the very top of that tree, is out of the deer's reach. Be healthy. Well, it, it underscore that, Howard, because we we were talking a little before we kicked in today, and I, among many others, I think, have uh, you know the perception that oh, I need to pr protect the perimeter, protect the boughs, and it, it's really the center of the tree. That, yeah, that's the most par yeah. perilous in terms yeah. of survivability. Yeah, it's the center stem that you want okay. to keep away from the deer. I had a tree on my property that was on a hill, and the deer got on the upside of the hill, got up on top of the cage with its front hoofs, and crushed it down and nibbled off that growing tip. Mm. If it happens once, generally the the tree will come back, and so I was lucky to catch it the next year. We reinforced the cage um, and now that tree is doing well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the growing tip. These trees, I, I want to kind of comment, I mean the reason we do all this is we want these trees to grow to provide shade to the river. 
We want these trees to grow and lock the soil in along the river margin to prevent erosion. And when that tree finally matures and falls into the water, we want that tree to stay in that water for about a hundred years to be fish cover. And cedar really lasts a long time, don't they? When they're in the water, they're going to be fish cover. They yeah. just don't decay like yeah. a, a popple or, or yeah. a maple or oak or anything. Well, and it, it, I think we've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast, kind of the evolution of thought, where at one time it was like, oh, line the banks with willow trees. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the answer. And But yet it's not. <laughs> so, you know, now we're, we're evolving and... And, and pursuing the white cedars. Are there other species of interest, Howard? That... We, we, we have an interest of tamaracks. Mm -hmm. And tamaracks will grow very quickly. They may be fast, double the speed of a, of a cedar. Mm -hmm. uh, I support the growth of tamaracks along the river. It doesn't quite meet our goal in our project because a tamarack, when it goes into the water, will not last anything as long as the cedar will in the water. It, it mm -hmm. will rot out. But the nice thing about the tamarack, it does grow quickly and it will provide shade to the the river. Right. And it likes to be in that same river mm -hmm. margin as yeah. a, but um, they sure are pretty in the fall when they turn that golden yellow, oh, aren't they? Yeah. Oh you bet. You bet. a beautiful a blue gray uh, needle too. Soft yeah. color. One, one of our river spring. property owners commented to me that he grows the tamaracks because they leaf out in the summer and people can't see into his cabin. And in the winter, it drops its leaves and he can see the river better. Oh, and, uh, so, that's interesting. There's, there's the trade. Yeah. 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 It, what nice. about the red cedar? I grew up in the Boston see, area. There we go. <laughs> red cedars were wonderful back there. Uh, people would carve with them and put them yeah. in their sock drawers. and. Pieces of the red cedar. Well, they're very similar to our northern whites. But, uh, but no interest in uh, adding those to our watershed? I don't think there's enough difference between the two species to add a, a, to another variety. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and there's other choices that somebody can make. And my best suggestion is talk to the Soil Conservation District and get different ideas. <clears throat> Participate in the in the shrubs and the, the tree pickup that they provide each year. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm a fly fisherman. I'm not a, I'm not a yeah. forester. I don't but, know what horticulture But tag on to that though, <laughs> think, think native plants and think local. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because one of the other things you're intimate with through the Property Owners Association, us through the North Branch Association, the <laughs> the purple loose strife. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, but it looks so pretty in the garden. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's bad pretty stuff. soon it's the only thing in the garden. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Remember but, yeah. his story about uh, uh, the uh, soil conservation fellow saying you'll be back from next year. When we first bought the cabin and planted, my wife wanted to put a bunch of shrubs out in the woods. So we went to the soil conservation district and ordered, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30 shrubs and planted them and put little yellow tags where we put them in. And, and uh, the deer ate them all. So I went back. She said, well, let's just try one more time. So mm -hmm. the next year I ordered another one. And I went to soil conservation on a Saturday to pick them up. And I said, I'm here for, for the deer feed. She says, we don't sell deer feed. <laughs> I showed her the list. I said, I think you do. <laughs> she ate them all last year. <laughs> she had a chuckle. said, okay. <laughs> and most of them are gone. So Mother Nature is now our uh, gardener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But John, you mentioned the, the purple loosestrife. And I'm very proud that... The Asaba River Property Owners Association, uh, through the really the foresight of uh, Dave Smith, maybe 10, 12 years ago, recognized that if we didn't act on that purple loosestrife, mm -hmm. we were going to have that yeah. on the river system. And twice mm -hmm. a year, Property Owners Association organized a, a flotilla of boats that come down and mm -hmm. and remove that purple loosestrife. And mm -hmm. it's so important to keep abreast of that. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned uh, um, Susan Teal, and uh, I think uh, we first got involved in Purple Loose Drive from the North Branch because of an old hook and trigger clock. Mm -hmm. And one of our members, Jack Hipshin, said, you know, this Purple Loose Drive, nobody knew what the heck it was, and I had even bought some up from downstate and planted it on our lake, <laughs> which has now all been taken care of. But um, So we got going on it, and Susan Teal was very helpful, 
We went to her and said, we need permission to, to get purple loosestrife off of state land. And she said, you also need permission to take it off of private land. Mm -hmm. So we had a letter of uh, permission and uh, she granted us permission. She even got us bags uh, to package up the purple yeah. loosestrife. She was very helpful and she said, you save your cost of, of putting this program together and we'll get it reimbursed. And Jerry Lake had a lot of expenses from mapping and doing all of that. And so that was the first time I think mm -hmm. we did anything. And David Smith shortly after that said, what the hell are you guys doing? Yeah. Talked to him and he jumped right on it because yeah. he's, he's Mr. Volunteer up here. Mm -hmm. oh, gosh, if mm -hmm. there's a project, uh, you want Dave Smith on your side. <laughs> <laughs> but wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful story. Tell me about your favorite flies, Howard. I think you and I have one uh, fly in common and interest, but uh, share some of your fishing fun stories with us. Yeah. I do enjoy the fishing the hex hatch and, and the drake hatch, but I sure enjoy fishing uh, under the water too, and I, I enjoy fishing soft tackle uh, a great deal, and it it's kind of mind-numbing because you it's not as critical of a set and, and you don't have to pay as much attention to it so you <laughs> can kind of wander down the river and and fish and enjoy the scenery uh so that i guess i really enjoy that uh, uh i have a, a fishing partner i spend a great deal of time fishing with who is a much better fisherman than i am uh, uh day fisher and if you're going to have a fishing partner, you need to have one that's better than you so, <laughs> so you can learn. And one thing Dave's taught me is we always, almost always fish two flies. Oh, and, really? And either one's floating and one's under the water or, or two floating. Uh, yeah, my concept is you want to give them a choice. You know, not it doesn't have to make a decision on does he want to fly. It's which one I'm, am mm -hmm. I going to grab. So uh, I don't particularly have any special flies that I use, but I do enjoy all types of, of trout fishing. Mm -hmm. um, last week I was on the PM and uh, we had those monster salmons on the end of the, oh, the line, my but gosh. I don't think I'm strong enough really to pull them in anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> so they're active now on the PM. Yep. Last week they were very active. Oh my, yeah. that could be yeah. fun. Mm -hmm. That could be a lot of fun. Big fish. Big fish. Yeah. Some browns mixed in there too. Occasionally you'll get a brown when you're. Yeah, and we did that. Mm -hmm. And what the last fish we caught that evening was a was a brown. So it's incredible to watch them, you know, try and cue and stage themselves for, you know, any eggs or anything at all. Yeah. It's you know, it's just the way they shadow and the, on the back of the uh, of the big fish. It's very interesting. Yeah, it was a cloudy day when we were there, and uh, so down in the holes you really wouldn't really see the see fish. you'd see movement you see shadows and 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 so forth yeah. but uh yeah. we had quite an interesting day and had uh, hit something in the water that didn't move and dave almost fell out of the boat but well he oh. did fall out of the boat but not all the way into the water no. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we dumped a year or so ago my son and my grandson and i in a canoe we were going down from from the green cabin down to a takeout, and we had some rapids, and over we went. Yeah. Good and wet, and emptied the canoe, got back in, and kept fishing. It was just an <laughs> awful lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> now, does your son fish with you, Howard? I have three sons, oh, okay. two, two of which fish with me. All right. One likes cement in big cities. Okay. <laughs> Where is he? Uh, he's down in Cincinnati, but he did fish with me right here on Shoepack Lake one time when he was little and caught oh, did he? something here. So, All right. All right. But, uh, and um, I have a daughter that's down in Key West, Florida, who's a graphic designer that uh, helps tremendously with our project. Uh, mm -hmm. She de developed our original logo and does all our brochures. So she helps and in her way that's a nice family but, project yep but it's uh it's it's really great uh, uh matter of fact uh, two weeks ago when we had the cedar tree distribution my my oldest son surprised us and came up to help by uh 
He was at a, a camp out uh, up in the north area. He had ridden his motorcycle up from Kalamazoo and then drove over and helped us for the day. Isn't that nice? And so the, he's done that many, many times. And they must all have wonderful memories of, uh, of the cabin on the South Branch. Oh, yeah, and that's, Glenn, that, it takes you a while to realize how fortunate you are, but mm -hmm. uh, they all grew up there. I grew up there. My mother, we have pictures of my mother as a baby in her arms out in front of the cabin Gosh. being held by her mother in some type of boat. So, uh, and my mom always talked about even when she remembered coming up from Bay City, it was an all-day trip. Sure. From below, and you know, decent roads to, mm -hmm. to maybe Standish, and then, you know, kind two of tracks back. almost. Yeah, at the end, it was two tracks all the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, did they ever run into uh, the Mason family at all uh, when they were on the South Branch? My grandfather never mentioned it, but my great-grandfather, the one that built the cabin, was more of the outdoorsman, the mm -hmm. conservationist. Mm -hmm. my, my grandfather himself was more of an industrialist. And, mm -hmm. and so I don't okay. think my grandfather really wandered the woods a lot. I sure wish I, I would have been around when my great-grandfather was around. But one day I, I, came, I came back from the Mason track one day and I had a piece of leather from somebody's suspenders. And I made a comment to one of the kids. I said, I think that was George Mason's. And that story, <laughs> they took it serious. That story stuck. <laughs> and that wasn't George Mason's. Story got a little Spender. staying power to it. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> but no, don't know him, but uh, we sure, sure appreciate oh. what he's done for us. I, uh, what foresight. I get involved uh, in a small, small way with the Trot Unlimited youth fishing. And, and I mm -hmm. meet with the kids one night, and I go I go through the story of George Mason and in the Mason track, and, and what he did, and the connection between really George Mason, George Griffiths, and Trout Unlimited in the beginning. He yeah. was the vision for Trout yeah. Unlimited. Really, yeah. he, he passed away in just right before. Yeah, and it was '59, so it took about five years before it uh, yeah it matured to that point. But uh, great story. It's Real cool to see how how you know concept can be a great concept, but still take a, t a bit of time to mature till it's ready to serve and be offered. You know, none of like yeah. a wine or something, but it needs time to flesh out. Exactly, it? other like interests. And yeah, that's a great story right here on the mainstream of the Osalo. Yeah, <laughs> Chris Woods is an interesting fellow, isn't he? He is, and he's really a gentleman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he's doing a fine job. Oh, I TU. do too. I I read his his editorial the first thing when I get the TU yeah, magazine. The magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it's Trout Week, right? This is TU Trout Week, I believe. The, um, um, it's all virtual. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah on, he's on the the seminars, the mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, people interested, I'm sure they'll archive it by the time you're hearing this. But um, a neat way to see what that vision is it's you know as we've talked on a few of these podcasts it's evolving yeah <laughs> rapidly mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you mentioned it's a trout week and i have to apologize i we're so busy at this time of the year with our own mm -hmm. local cedar tree planting sure um we've actually we've actually had a, a very very busy year uh it starts in the spring with mason griffiths doing a planting of 50 trees in the Williams track above Grayling. Mm -hmm. uh, then we had work projects on the on the Manistee of replacing cages. Uh, then we had a, a planning a couple weeks ago, Anglers of Asabo had begun a new planning with Forest Service on federal land below Mile. Did they do that during the river cleanup? Is yeah, it was actually the a spinoff of, of, the, of the cleanup. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the date may get changed next year, so it isn't on the same weekend as the cleanup. It may mm -hmm. stand on its own. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anglers plan to continue with that on, on federal land. Uh, we we had our, we Paul Young chapter had a work project. Oh on the South Branch at Daisy Bend, putting large cages on their plantings and on it. Um, Jim Shiflett, uh, 
along with the anglers of Asabo group last weekend, uh, we had a, pl a planting on the upper Manistee and we had the cedar tree distribution. Mm -hmm. So uh, September is a busy, mm -hmm. busy month for us. Uh, another nice thing that happens is uh, occasionally at banquets or get-togethers, uh, somehow Cedars of the Osable is right in the middle of that by having uh, centerpieces and tables, which are cedars that are started in a little pot. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of those you're going to go out and see here in a, at, at, at the end of our podcast. A uh, delightful way to spread the word. Yeah, and those are generally, those come from Marlene Swiss to be table pieces and we put together a little packet of the two stakes and the fence and the and the crown and the instructions mm -hmm. so the person that leaves with this potted cedar tree centerpiece has a way to put it outdoors and plant it and have it survive mm -hmm. immediately actually great idea great idea and, you know and we've talked a lot about this and i before we go too much further i think folks need to understand that uh You'll take a volunteer whenever, whenever and wherever, I'm assuming. Yeah. And as well as, um, you know, this happens out of the generosity of a lot of people. Um, it, and I hope I'm getting this right. Is it micedars.org? Or is it... Well, it's actually the official one. The official one. The website is cedarsfortheasabo.org. Okay. And, and, and we'll put that in the podcast notes mm -hmm. so people can get mm -hmm. to it. But I want to... I want to get that out there because you, you do such a great job managing this brand mm -hmm. and the mission. And there's so many ways for people to reach out and interact with you and get involved. And they don't have to be, you know, we're blessed and we can walk out the back door and mm -hmm. plant ours. Maybe somebody can't. You'll take that virtual assistance. Yes. Lots of ways to help. Yeah. Whether it's funding, providing money, or, or getting involved and... and Helping out with planning. Mm -hmm. The our website, the Cedars for the is really developed and watched over by uh, Julie Gibbs, uh, who is also mm -hmm. a board member with the Property Owners Association, and really got to know Julie and her husband Jim uh, because many years ago, when they were getting married, they suggested they would not care to have gifts for their wedding but ask people to make a donation to the Cedar Tree Project. Oh, be darned. Very cool. And I really didn't know them well until that point. And then, and then Jim is very, very involved in other Trout Unlimited activities. And Julie helps us tremendously uh, with our project. Now, the, the name, John, that you mentioned, that M.I. Cedar, where that comes about is we realized that when somebody plants cedar trees on their private property, because of the length of the time it takes that cedar to de develop, it often happens that that property gets sold and a new property owner comes in. Mm -hmm. And they see all these cedars in cages in front and doesn't know anything about the program or what to do with this. And Julie was the one that came up with the idea. We put this little aluminum tag on, on, tag. on the cedar cage. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when exactly that happens, a new property owner comes on, they see that, that tag that, and they go to the website and that actually takes them into our website oh, okay. and it gives them directions on how to take care of these cedars. And it also reminds people that if they have cedars growing on their property in the smaller cages and are wondering what to do, the instructions will tell them when it, that cedar outgrows that little cage. If you simply remove the cage, mm -hmm. the deer are going to eat that it's tree good. the it's next gone. year. And to go into the McLean Ace Hardware Store in Grayling, and they're nice enough to keep in stock these larger cages for us. Mm -hmm. And you can walk in there and Right now, the price is $10 for this large six-foot-high cage, and you get new wooden stakes to secure that cage. And McLean does this out of courtesy and involvement in the community for That's us. Great. That's well, yeah, great. And, and that, that 10 bucks is like a, a copay sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, the yeah. true cost of that is much higher. 
Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. is subsidized as a function of yeah, a lot of the people mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you know, your true cost of materials probably double that. Yeah, sure. But again, people that donate to the program and so forth, and and when I was mentioning the volunteers that help, I mean, there's just a tremendous number of people that each year will make a, a financial contribution sure. to the program. And if you want to get involved and help, uh, you can go on our website. There's a page on our website that will tell all the activities that we have coming up. And not just the plannings on the state land, but other plannings that are happening and how to be involved with, with river conservation. What through. a great program. Yeah. And you mentioned Jimmy and Julie Gibbs. and. Uh, I should mention also that uh, Jimmy's uh, has taken over as a director of our uh, Tufts TU Fly Fishing School now uh, from uh, Scott, previous president. And uh, he's doing a great job, and Julie's a big help behind the scenes. So yeah. you spoke of those two people. They really make things happen. Yeah. Good folks. That's awesome. What a day, huh? This is fun. <laughs> John, I think maybe it's time to thank Howard and uh, maybe see if we can... Uh, I, I think it's time to plant that tree. Sneak out and go take a look at the tree. I've got to make sure I planted it right. Well, I was going to say, you, of all the people you could get as a mentor and oh, yeah. uh, coach for this effort, uh-huh. the you godfather know, of cedars. I will mention one other fellow, Ralph Rosinski. Ralph Rosinski, a retired dentist, is one hell of a cedar planter. And he came <laughs> over and helped transplant a cedar tree. And you'll take a look at this one also. It was right by the faucet next to the house. And we moved it about uh, 15, 20 feet, put a cage on it. He was out here this past spring uh, fishing. And I said, go take a look at that tree. He couldn't believe it. It's 15 feet high now. Well, when I mentioned there's people behind the scenes, uh, Ralph Rosinski, um, has is one of those people that, but he takes such a low profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, Ralph went in and and planted twenty cedars at the uh, fish hatchery. Oh, we, we put twenty cedars in there, <clears throat> and what was interesting there, we our job was only half because we we planted the cedars and we didn't have to cage them all because the hatchery itself is it's is, caged. Is, is <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, but again, I was sworn into secrecy that uh, Ralph likes to do things behind the scene. And so, but since you brought Ralph's name up, uh, Ralph is going with me next week to plant cedars for an older couple that bought cedars and doesn't feel like they, they have the capabilities to plant, but they're willing to give their land. Yeah. And so uh, we're going over to plant some cedars right about at the, on the mainstream at the confluence of the South. Oh my, that's great. But uh, don't let anybody uh, know that it was Ralph that's going to be doing it. He wants to keep a low key. Would you say hi to Ralph for me? (laughs) He's a wonderful man. You know, there's other things that go on the river besides cedar planting, and there's all kinds of conservation work going on. There's uh, insect uh, studies, there's sediment studies, there's red surveys, and it seems to me that you've been involved in some red surveys in the past. Uh, on the South Branch in particular. I think that started on the North Branch probably 50 years ago, and it's still going on. But what's your involvement with the red surveys, Howard? Well, Glenn, you are right. I mean, the the whole concept of red surveys started with Jerry Lake here on the North Branch. And a red survey is simply tracking the location and the size and the depth of water and of the female spawning area that she develops on the bottom of the river and the gravel of the river. Mm-hmm. And we also look to see if there's cover next to that spawning area that the, that the female trout can dart to, uh, to eliminate uh, predation. And so that's one of the things that we're measuring so it's done here, on, it started with Jerry Lake here on the North, Terry Lyons now with Anglers is following up on that. Bob Andrus and a group of people do it on the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And my involvement with Mason Griffith chapter, um, Karen Harrison asked me if I would kind of head up a program on the South Branch because I live uh-huh. there. And you know, there's only a certain number of volunteers and most of the volunteers are already actively helping in the fall with the red study on both the north and the main. So I brought 
volunteers up from Mershon Newman chapter yeah. oh, to help. Oh, there we go. And good, because good. it takes 20 people or so to do this, and mm -hmm. it's it's not the greatest climate to do it in because it's the end of October, the it's first of, of November. And what we do is we mimic what, what Jerry started. Uh, we use, we'll have teams of about 10 teams of two or three people. Uh, we'll do a morning session, an afternoon session. And what we're doing is walking the river looking for these female trout reds. Uh, once we find one, we GPS that location. We measure the size of the red, the depth of the water. And very importantly, is there um, cover for that female mm -hmm. trout? Mm -hmm. uh, or is she going to be completely <clears throat> exposed while she's on the, on the red? So we have about 100 reds on the South Branch each year that yeah, we're, okay. we're, we're tracking. We keep that data, and Steve Johnson uh, does the data for us and mm -hmm. keeps the GPS locations. And of those 100 reds, what percentage were uh, had, had adjacent cover, Howard? Well, that's a little different on the South Branch uh, than the other branches. About half of them of the locations on the South Branch have no cover. Really? So one of the goals of our project, particularly for the South Branch, is to, in some way, provide fish co cover for that trout mm -hmm. while she's performing the spawning. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have proper spawning, we're not going to have natural gonna re regeneration of, of trout. I think the first red I did, survey I did with Jerry Lake, we, we did that assessment and it seems to me it was about 85% of the reds on the North Branch had adjacent cover. Yeah. I mean, within a foot or so of yeah. where the red is so that the female can dart over in case there's a predator. Uh, and so that's quite quite a difference. Well, I think on the south, the problem is the south. The south will come up two or three feet mm -hmm. in the in the in the spring, and that cover lots of natural cover is flushed flushed away. Yeah. A lot of it's gone. Yeah. So are they selecting spots in lieu of available cover? Are they going for depth, or they just are you finding? Well, I don't think the trout swells is thinking. I don't think the trout has cover as concept so there, she's selecting the spot where her eggs will be in oxygenated water mm -hmm. in gravel oxygenated water okay. the fact that there's no cover I don't think mm -hmm. is something they think about mm -hmm. but we think about mm -hmm. clean gravel and velocity are the two yeah. keys yeah. With, with that oxygenation yeah. process but when we started this on the south I mean Jerry Lake came over year after year to help with with mm -hmm. training mm -hmm. and as well as other members of the uh, Mason Griffith chapter came over, yeah. and now it's about a 50-50, uh, Mershon people and Mason Fellers. people okay. doing it. That's good. But it's a cold, cold day. Oh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a tough day. Uh, Jerry Lake is very good about describing the actual trout red, and there's other things that look like it that the geese can, can yep. create, or muskrats can mm -hmm. create in the river. Ducks. And you'd say, boy, this is a red, and, and Jerry Lake would say, that's not a red. Well, wait a minute, Jerry, it's a red, it's gravel. No, it isn't because of the way that it's cut in the front edge or the back edge or, or there's a plant life in it. Inside of it. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's pretty important to understand yeah. what's a red and what isn't because you can get fooled. Well, I'll tell you, you know, this is an ideal time to start your education that way. <laughs> That's for sure. Because it, they really haven't started, you know, dusting up. Yeah. But the waterfowl, and the muskrats have been going crazy. So yeah. there's a lot of, you look out across the river and you look down and it's like, wow, there's a lot of scrubbed out gravel and it's mm -hmm. just waterfowl mm -hmm. or yeah. you know, small muskrats. animals that are taking sure. that mm -hmm. submerged mm -hmm. plant life away. It's important but that's a great way to get familiar because as Jerry says, you look at the the edges and the you know whether or not it's rounded. It's, mm -hmm. But this is a good yeah. way to get the what it's not picture. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is. This isn't. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the South Branch seems to be a darker bottom than the mm -hmm. than especially the North. Mm -hmm. So it is a little more difficult to bear, and that's yeah. what part of the training yeah. process is mm -hmm. to learn. And this is the precursor to population growth and and dropping off. If we see a remarkable drop in the number of reds, uh, that's telling us that we have a problem coming. Yeah. It's a very important metric. Yeah. Sure is. And uh, again, think of the hours of volunteer work that's done up here. 
this is a great place to live and it's wonderful to meet the people that are involved. John and I have been blessed to be able to do this podcast <laughs> and learn about people like you, Howard Johnson, and what you have contributed to the cold water fisheries up here and to our wonderful Northwoods. Uh, thank you so much for what you've done and for what you're doing and keep it up, man. Thank you, Glenn. Thank, John, you. thank you. Howard, thank you so much, mm -hmm. sir. Great job, gentlemen. Great day. Let's go see that cedar. Here we go. <laughs> Oh, that was fun. Howard's a fantastic gentleman. Uh, as Glenn said, we're, we're very fortunate to uh, be able to speak with a lot of really great people. So thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode. Until then, mind your backcast. <laughs>